Welcome to the Word Weaver podcast, a literary place in cyberspace where I share tangible tips, tricks, and words of wisdom to help you achieve your dream of writing a book. I'm your host, Louise Johnson, a writer and the author of Behind the Red Door. Let's dive into today's chapter. So welcome back to the Word Weaver podcast. I'm very excited to chat with the lovely best-selling author, Rachel McMillan. She is author of, and correct me if I'm wrong, over 16 books and counting. Yeah, there's a lot. <laughs> the Herringford and Watts series. Yeah. The Van Buren and DeLuca mysteries. Yeah. And then you have the three quarter time series set in Vienna. Yeah. My personal favorite, if I had to pick <laughs> one of your favorite children, the London Restoration. Isn't that um, cover pretty? It's gorgeous. so pretty. I, mean, I had nothing to do with the cover, so I can say that. Cover, I love it. It's beautiful. It's so and stunning, then yeah. Your fourth or your upcoming novel, the Mozart Code, which comes yeah. out March 2022. Yeah. Also a gorgeous cover. Yeah. Oh, so I've already pre-ordered that. I can't wait. Welcome to the show. Thanks for taking time out of your day to have a cup of tea. With oh, me. I've got my bubbly here. Cheers. <laughs> Cherry bubbly. Cheers. It's so nice to, uh, I, I mean, I didn't even know that you were a Canadian author. When I saw your cover on NetGalley, I just clicked the heck out of that. I was like, what is this? And then yeah. it's like, oh, Toronto and Elizabeth Arden. And I didn't even know that there was a connection. So, oh my God, it was me. You were one of the first people to read and review it. And I'll oh. never forget that. That meant so much to me. And I mean, I might as well start with that question because that's how I first, well, really got to know you. I'd actually already read the London Restoration. Oh, that's funny. <laughs> <laughs> and then put two and two together. And so I was honored, but you're such a champion of, aspiring and established writers, authors. You do Facebook live conversations. I joined last night listening yeah. to Joy Calloway. Yeah. You're an advocate on social media. So that's a great place to start. Like how important is having a network and a writing community to you? Has it always been that important throughout your writing career? I started as a blogger and an influencer before I even, I guess I've been publishing for about six years now, yeah. but I knew that I would never go anywhere or even want to go anywhere if I didn't focus on the fact that I, I am a reader first and an author second. I am a huge book lover. And I think that the most important thing authors can do is uplift each other because it is the hardest job in the world. And we all know that it just takes one tweet or one word of mouth moment to start a ball rolling for people. So I make sure that it's a massive, massive part of my day is reading other authors, um, saying yes to way too many book endorsement requests. <laughs> <laughs> like, um, it's it's um, just really important to me because I, I know what it's like mm -hmm. to try and scream into the void especially during the pandemic so um it's just always been a passion of mine because oh I'm such God. a book lover oh well thank you for all that you do and it's something that I aspire to do more of and that was that's part of my other question is how do you find the balance of reading and doing blurbs promoting yeah. with your own writing editing 
publishing. Yeah, it's it's really yeah. hard. I mean, in my quote unquote day job, I'm a literary agent. So mm-hmm. that's a huge, it's kind of, it overlaps because you do I, it all. <laughs> I do it all, but it means that I have to have an idea of the pulse of the industry anyways. Mm-hmm. So I'm always going to be reading, but I make sure that there is an hour of my day where I read, like, I just have to read first thing in the morning. And I just make sure that it's a huge part of my life. Does it get exhausting? Yes. Does it get overwhelming? But it's the thing that I recommend that aspiring authors do. Mm-hmm. The more you can uplift the community in an in authentic and natural way, not a suck up way. Yeah. The great dividend that comes from this is that readers notice you talking about books and you connect, can connect with readers prospective readers of your own books over another interest. And so it's just an organic part of the community, but I make sure that I carve out and I'm doing so many of these Facebook lives over the next few months of which we have to schedule yours. Um, And it's (laughs) just, it's just because there's so with the pandemic, we've been so cut off from the, the normal way of conferences and book signings that authors are being told by their publicists, you have to get in front of readers. Well, what can I do to help them check that off of their list? Just like you're doing this with your podcast. Yeah. We all just kind of help each other. Exactly. I honestly started this because writing is a solitary business. I felt very alone and I wanted to connect with other people going through the same thing. I mean, your friends and family are there, but they don't really understand. They do not. Absolutely. And the, the, the result, I don't know about you, but I'm somebody who never writes at home. Mm -hmm. I have to be at the library or coffee shop or a pub. I take my laptop everywhere in Toronto. And so I nomadic writer. Yeah. And it's partly because the noise helps me block out my own negative voices. So the pandemic was just ripe for this echo of, oh my gosh. And I had an interest, you know, I had a book that was my biggest print run to date uh, called Dream Plan Go. It was a solo travel guide. Your nonfiction book. My nonfiction. And it released May 2020. So here I was doing all these Zoom events for dreaming, and planning, and traveling. You could go anywhere. <laughs> so it was just that that constant. You know, I remember what it was like to just shout into the void, and the world is on fire, and it's like, go promote your book that nobody wants. Okay. Um. I know it was such a struggle. I I mean, I really commend all 2020 authors because you were kind of on the frontier of figuring out how to do all this virtual launches and you launched four books I did 2020 I did that is insane (laughs) it was crazy however I mean it was also really it's the first time in my life I've been able to go into chapters and see I, I was kind of fortunate too. London Restoration. It's the first time I've been able to go and see a book of mine on the bestseller wall at yeah. Indigo like that. So it had those cool moments, but we were all just trying to adapt, right? Yeah. And so the more we can all just help each other out, it just, mm-hmm. it doesn't take a lot of time and you get to read, which is the best part. The best, um, yeah. <laughs> to be a good writer, you have to be a big reader. Yes. 
Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So your day is filled with reading and writing that, which is the dream for most people. It, yes, it's <laughs> yeah. busy, um, but it, it's totally worth it. I mean, you know, more than anyone, how hard this industry is. So yeah. you have to really want it. Mm-hmm. And with that comes recognizing how much goes into making sure that other people who really want it are given the time of your day to try and make. <laughs> yeah. And do it, doing it in an authentic way, like you said, where it yeah. comes across genuine and you do that so well. So I really Aww, commend you thanks. because it is, it's a hard balance even to write one book in a year, let alone read and promote other people's, let alone publish four in a year. So I need, I need to know, I've been dying to know. Yeah. I mean, I have so many questions, but really you've published 16 books. Yeah. What is your day-to-day writing process like to get that kind of volume out there, edit those books? And then also you kind of mentioned you are nomadic, you go to coffee shops yeah. and libraries. Like what are your tools of the trade? Are you pen and paper? Are you writing on your laptop, Scrivener? How do you organize all of this so that you're writing, editing and publishing in such an amazing cadence? It's been crazy. Cause the first, uh, the Van Buren and DeLuca books of which there are two and all the Herringford and Watts of which there are three novels and three novellas were all written while I was working in a corporate publishing job. So I left that job three years ago, but I was working lunch break. I would do all of my social media. (laughs) I was working evenings, weekends, holidays, Christmas, and it was all to get to, I've always wanted to publish historical romance, but nobody was buying it. So I just went, they wanted historical mystery. I just got my foot in the door. Now romance is hot. I know. And I love (laughs) writing it. So I'm so excited, but, uh, it, it really also, you'll notice that yes, they're all books, but they don't all have the same amount of, you know, London restoration was a lot of research, years of research, time spent in London, going to the churches, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Um, a book like dream plan go, which was my uh, nonfiction, or I even wrote a book called the very merry holiday movie guide, which is my love for Hallmark movies. Those don't take they just don't take as much time. So I do tend to prioritize by deadline. Okay. But one of the things that I always have is a book that I'm working on only for me. So just to remember that I started this as a little kid, the joy of writing without all of the publishing expectation and the business side of it. Yeah. But when it, I do chunk out my days a lot because so morning is when I do email and agent stuff at any type of meetings that I can do. I do those in the morning. Cause and what I am time not, are you getting up in the morning? Usually probably around nine. nine. <laughs> oh, good. That's, That's I great. This t- <laughs> I am a nine. A- I am not a morning person. So I'm not <laughs> one of those five 30 AM writers club people. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then I tend to, you know, I tend to get into the groove in mid to later afternoons. So I'll usually, um, I like to prep my brain for writing. So my writing doesn't just happen at my computer or my laptop when I'm out in the world. Mm -hmm. Um, It happens in my head. So I'll go to the gym or go for one of the many long pandemic hikes I took (laughs) in Toronto. Um, And I do write on my laptop, but one of the things that I do Mm -hmm. is I'm a very location-driven writer. 
Yes. So I do research trips with the notebook and I write all of my descriptions longhand. And then I'll, if I haven't gotten to that part of the book yet, I funnel Mm -hmm. them in after. So I, you know, I've written a lot in Vienna, Mozart Coates set half in Prague, London Restoration was London, Boston was my Van Buren and DeLuca. I just go and I will take a notebook and I'll write out everything that I see and then sew it in later. So that's one of my tips of the trade for anybody. Don't worry about having, if you're writing something in a different location or you only have a certain amount of time in a place, don't worry about having written all of the chronological parts to get to that. Yeah. Take a notebook, take your iPhone camera and get all of that stuff while it's fresh and you can go back to it after and just weave it into your book. Really great tip while it's fresh. And it's also fun to have an excuse to go on these research trips. Yes. Yeah. Well, cause that's, that was one of my questions too, is that your books are so rich and they let you travel not just geographically but also through time and I was going to ask you about world building and how you create your settings and if there are any places that you haven't yet written about I'm excited to read about Prague and Vienna you're (laughs) the Vienna series is also the three-quarter time yeah that's my Vienna series yeah Yeah. that's my favorite city yeah do you start (laughs) with the place and the setting or do you start with the characters and the setting comes after it really depends on the book. With Herringford and Watts, I knew I wanted to write something in Edwardian era Toronto because mm-hmm. there was the morality squad and women were being arrested for vagrancy. And I thought, what a great concept yeah. to use Toronto, which is something I know and love because I live here um, <laughs> and have my trouser wearing lady detectives hide <laughs> from, you know, the Toronto police. I love so that a lady with- detective. <laughs> um But with, uh, you know, uh, for London Restoration, I was actually in London just on vacation. I wasn't writing anything at the time. You know, I was just finishing up a Hamish DeLuca book. Um, And I was there and I wandered into this church and I was like, oh, St. Bartholomew the Great, which is just off of Fleet Street. And I was like, oh my gosh. And I just, I met Brent Somerville and my, I met those characters in this church. Diana and Brent. Diana and Brent. And I was like, oh, I guess I'm writing Christopher Wren churches now. Um, so I, in that, <laughs> I just knew that I had to write those beautiful buildings. So that's what happened with that. Mm-hmm. Um, and then with Mozart Code, I mean, I'm always looking for uh, an opportunity to write. If, if my publisher said, you can set the rest of your books in Vienna for the rest of time, that's what I would do. <laughs> um, <Yeah. laughs> uh, Over speak- London? Oh, yeah. I love London, but Vienna is my just my favorite place. Um, but I remember, you know, in your book, you brought Switzerland to brilliant life. Oh, thank you. Zurich. And I just, I loved though, because gosh, I'm going to geek out over you for a moment, but that, (laughs) that whole sequence of homesickness while you were in a beautiful place really resonated because you've got this gorgeous surrounding And yet it was such a pivotal moment in your life, creatively, career-wise. Yes. Yeah. Oh, that's so nice that you, because that was one of my worries too, that it would sound almost melodramatic or, oh, too privileged. I mean, you're in such a beautiful place like Switzerland, a 3D postcard, but it really is those young, big feelings and it's relatable and it was the truth. So I struggled with 
I hope this does this comes across the way I mean it to very but gently you, I mean it wasn't yeah. just you know you you were working hard and I loved that your entire family visited you and you all just stayed in your apartment. I mean, yep. you weren't just like renting out these luxury hotels. It was no, Switzerland <laughs> was is the most expensive place on earth. <laughs> so expensive. Um, but yeah, I, I just, uh, that was one of those. Cause I, I thank you for saying that you like the location settings in my book, but I am a location driven reader in many ways especially yeah. during the pandemic because nobody the only way anywhere. to travel um so that that really struck me so I hope that I can kind of evoke the same things with readers because that really flashed and, and it's been a while since I've been to Zurich but you just paint Switzerland so well so oh thank you and that's what you do with London Vienna Prague I'm excited to read about Prague I've never yeah. been there but yeah, it, that's the delicious part about reading. You get to transport yourself yes. without moving your feet from your yeah. own couch. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm really, really excited to read that and get there. Mike, I also am curious because you mentioned how you were excited for the London Restoration bestseller in Canada, Indigo yeah. bestseller. Were you expecting that? And what does success like look and feel like for you as an author? It's very different for everyone. And was it making a bestseller list after publishing a few series you finally get in with historical romance you're hitting bestseller lists you're achieving these big dreams but is that what success is for you or is it number of copies sold or what does that look like for me success is writing towards the next contract yeah it's always going to be me doing well enough that I can get another contract and keep doing it. Um, I didn't have exp I just wanted London Restoration to not just sink into the mire that was 2020. Um, and I actually people were reading. It was amazing, and I actually had no idea until a friend sent me a picture of London Restoration on the bestseller wall in Kingston at Chapters. She's like, Rachel, I'm like oh, is my book a chapter? <laughs> oh, that's We're always the last to know. It's just, and it's just so overwhelming because, um, and you know this, you, there is no glamour to this life at all. And a release date is a release date for readers and bookstores. But by that point, you've already had all the endorsements come in. People have been on NetGalley. People have been one-starring you on Goodreads because they're mean. Um, <laughs> just so mean, cruel. just one star. No, even, even a three star. I'm like, if you liked it, why a three? <laughs> like, why are you being difficult? Um, yeah. So it success for me is just being able to keep in this business. Yeah. And I know people are like, don't you want to be a New York Times bestseller? Or don't you want to read awards? And I've never really been able to get past the fact that I get to be published at all yeah. and I actually kind of don't want that to go away mm -hmm. <laughs> um, because I, I kind of enjoy the fact that I still get overwhelmed just seeing my book at Book City it's like what yeah this is so cool or it'll never get old no um so I, I think that that was a huge 
for me, writing Mozart code during the pandemic was really hard for me. Like it took three editorial memos from my editor. The publication date had to be changed because I kept scrapping and rewriting. So I was at this really horrible place thinking, you are the worst writer ever. You should pay back your advance. We all get there at some point. (laughs) Um, And so to have the book resonate with people was really amazing for me. Um, but my, my idea of success is, you know, that my mom likes it. Yeah. And that I just keep getting to do this kind of thing. For and, a living. Uh, yeah. And was it a, always a dream of yours to be a writer? I'm curious going back. Cause I think I heard you went to school for music and that's yeah. nice. the Mozart code can kind yeah. of come into that. Where did the dream of becoming a writer stem from? I always wrote since I was a little kid, since I was like eight or nine, but I was, I didn't really end up showing anyone my work until my now agent. I was too nervous. And that was about six years ago. Um, And so it, I guess I kind of shifted from just writing. I was always writing for fun. I have so many manuscripts nobody will ever see, but I don't regret them because I was just writing and crafting stories and coming up with things. but it really shifted when I thought, if I don't do this, will I regret it the rest of my life? Yeah. Um, and so then I kind of changed my mindset. Uh, and I was already kind of involved in the book community because I was always reading and I had a book blog for ages, now defunct. Um, <laughs> and and uh, so publishers were always kind of saying, hey, Rachel, can you influence this? Can you endorse this? Did that kind of thing um, from that world. And it just kind of evolved from there. But yeah, I've kind of, and I don't, I just knew music is something that I appreciate. But as I said, you know, writers, you have to want it 10 times more than anybody else. Yeah, It's the same for music and performing arts and voice performance, which is where I started. I didn't, I recognized that I loved it, but I didn't love it enough to see myself going after it the way other students in my program did. That's very profound actually to realize, recognize that about yourself so young. It, it took some time, but I was just like, you can love this and engage with it. Mm -hmm. And I do, there's music in every book that I write. And it's a huge part of my, like, I love opera and plays and all the stuff that's been shut down. Um, (laughs) (laughs) um, But I, yeah, I realized that you have to want it. And the thing that I wanted 10 times more than anybody else was books. Books. So this is where I am. (laughs) But I love that. That's the best part about writing is that you can still incorporate your other loves like music into the work and you just keep following your passion. You had started with the blog now you're an agent as well. Now, yeah. and now you're the published best-selling author of your own <laughs> books. And if you just keep following those steps and don't give up, because there's many times we all want to give up, yeah. even starting a new book. I don't think it gets easier. At least it, it uh, I find it gets harder, yeah. but I will tell people do not wait for your heart book to be published mm-hmm. because you might Great wait advice. forever. It's very rare that an agent and author's first book gets published. The book that got me an agent still hasn't been published. It might not ever be, but you know, you can either go back to those things, but if you are savvy enough to study the industry and you're willing to be malleable, there is a place for so many writers. Um, And I think that, you know, 
that's part of the fairy tale of this is the perseverance part. <laughs> yeah. Well, that begs the question, how do you personally handle rejection? Because that's something we have to get used to. It's part and parcel of yes. this career. And I don't think it's easy because to be a writer, you have to be a sensitive person. You have to be attuned yeah. to the nuances of the world. It's kind of our superpower, but it's also on the other end of that coin makes us more susceptible to being hurt by the rejection. How do you handle it from the publishing industry and any advice for people, especially new upcoming writers, even just getting rejected on the querying stage of getting yeah. a literary agent? Um, one of the things that I would say as an agent, and this could help anybody who is thinking about querying agents is when I sign an author, I am taking their entire career into my hands. Yeah. So if I don't know that I can sell that book, why drag a writer along? It's not fair to the author. So they may get, and I try to write really kind, informative, <laughs> um, Pat, I call them passes, not rejections, right? Because I want to say I'm passing. I'm not I am rejecting your manuscript. It often, it passing it on often has nothing to do with writing ability. Mm -hmm. A lot of times it has to do with social media. Yep. I need, even fiction authors need some kind of platform. Ugh, or platform, it's, that word. <laughs> yeah, instinct. And it's like, am I the best champion for this book? And sometimes it takes me asking for a full and reading the book before I realize I am not the best person for this. So the writer, the story they're telling themselves is that all agents hate me. Whereas I'm over here thinking, oh my gosh, I really love this, but I can only do so many clients because <laughs> I have another job. Um, it's, I think it's unfair to sign authors mm -hmm. and just drag. And lots of agents have all of these authors on their websites for years and years that have never gotten a contract. Yeah. I don't find that ethical or fair. I agree. Uh, so I would remember that in rejection, it has nothing to do with you or your writing most of the time. Yeah. It's how can I position this? Is it in competition with another writer that I'm representing? And is the market ready for this? Am I the right person? So that's because I am taking your career into my hands. So why would I just sign you if I cannot deliver on that? The pressure is high. Um, as for personal rejection, I feel that rejection is built into the trajectory of the publishing industry to almost protect us Yeah. in a way like because that. you get rejected by agents, which fortifies you for being rejected by editors when your book's on submission, mm -hmm. which fortifies you for when you pitch to an editor who you're working with and they're like, that idea is terrible. Or you get your editorial feedback and a manuscript that's been contracted. And some of those notes are really harsh, like scratch this, oh. you've already been through it. And then the final cog in the wheel is that you're going to get terrible reviews because you have to. So there's two things that I always tell people. First, you don't like every book that you read or piece of art you consume. You mm -hmm. cannot expect everybody to like your book. Yeah. The other thing is reviews are for readers. They are not for you. We've all been tagged by reviewers who tag us in awful reviews because <laughs> 
they didn't take etiquette lessons. <laughs> um, but I don't read Goodreads reviews. I don't. Good I, for you. I was going to ask if you read. I don't. Um, I, I tend tempting. to. My, my publisher will send me some of the trade reviews, but some of those are terrible too. <laughs> uh, and then I remember as a reader, often I'll read a bad review of something and everything that that reviewer hated is something that I'm looking for in a book. So I'm like, oh, you hated that there was too much romance in this historical? <laughs> click, click, click. Um, one, <laughs> one click by. Um, so I, I think that that is a huge thing is to remember that it's a conversation between readers and it, it is not about you. Mm -hmm. And we all know that readers have bad days. Yeah. And something sets them off. So if you can just keep doing good reviews will not help you either, whether it's good or bad. No, nope, yep. Absolutely. It's not really going to make you a better writer. Um, so the more that you can stay out of that conversation as a writer and just let readers dialogue amongst themselves can really save you in the end. Great advice. Yeah. It's subjective. Yeah. And I always find too, if you're asking somebody to review a book, it's, you're, it's an invitation almost to critique it because yeah. people don't want to say it's perfect because that says something about themselves that they can't analyze it. So you're, they're always going, there's always going to be a critique I find because it's them kind of putting their own intelligence onto it. If that Absolutely. Makes sense. And yeah. the other thing to remember when you work in the world, you can find something positive to do for every last book. I have author people that yeah. are author connections in the community where I personally do not like their books or their, just because it's a personal preference thing. Yeah, your taste. I can still promote their work. You do not have to sit and review or critique every book you influence. And when I'm asked to endorse a book that's maybe not my personal favorite, I think of the reader who's going to love this oh. and I write for that reader. So there's always a way to promote and uplift writers. And find the, the silver line, because like you said, this is the hardest job that's so hard. <laughs> and I do yeah. think readers are non-writers are always surprised by the industry. I think a lot of people just think, and I naively thought this before I started, you kind of, you write the book and then a couple months later, you might find it in chapters or indigo. Yeah. People miss the step between. And I think a lot of people don't even realize once you get a quote unquote book deal, the book won't be on shelf for another one to two years. Oh yeah. And all of the steps in between the edits and the rewrites. And I've got questions of, well, why does it have to be rewritten so many times? Are you not a good writer? Did you not right. do it good the yeah. first time? And I was like, I don't even think the best authors in the world get it right on the first draft. No, yeah. we need, like the ed editors are brilliant. Yes. And so few authors are great editors because it's a different skill set. Your editor sees the best version of the book in a way that you, po you cannot possibly see because you're so close to the material. Oh. So rewrites are a pain and they often make you feel terrible yeah. and 20 page like notes from the editor saying, change all of this in the moment. It's like, Ooh. but there are so many steps ahead of you in seeing the best version of the book. It's yeah. So it's what part of the whole process then for you, because you've done this with 
a couple different genres, mystery, yeah. romance, nonfiction. What part of the process is your favorite? Would you, is it the research, the writing, the editing, the marketing? There's stuff I love about it. When I get geeked out about research, I go absolutely nuts. I yeah. just love it. Um, you know, we were talking about Joy Calloway, like last night talking to Joy Calloway and how much she loves it too. Um, I, love, I it. love the moment where everything starts to click when the characters just start talking for themselves and I'm taking dictation. Mm -hmm. um, but also this might be an unpopular opinion with writers, but I actually find that my books come alive in substantive edits or developmental edits as they're sometimes called. Once I get the, the feedback and I really start getting into the story, I often have a lot of changes happen, but it just takes me to another level. Just the, my editor has such insight that that's probably my favorite, not at the moment, but when I see the final product, I'm like, wow. That was right. That's so you don't have a hard time killing your darlings. I, what I do is I repurpose them if there's a line or something that I really like, I very selectively choose which hills I'm going to die on, <laughs> right? Because you have to, you can't just yeah. fight on everything. Um, there's things that I just will not sacrifice for the story or something that I really love. But I also repurpose stuff. If there's a line or something and it just works somewhere else within that book or another book, I keep a notebook open uh, on my MacBook and just keep <laughs> love it. Yeah. funneling that stuff in. <laughs> I have a folder called Word Graveyard. Yes, I put it all in the Word Graveyard, and then I go for my. You next go back. <laughs> it's like, haha! I'm using like, I like this that time. line. It's still stuck with me. <laughs> well, then, what is the most surprising part for you, or challenging part of the whole process, from kind of ideation to completion? I think that what I really, and this is very COVID specific mm -hmm. because Mozart code was such a hard book for me to write is that I didn't realize that as much as writing is an escape for me. And I love losing myself in worlds when something like the pandemic and our 18 month Toronto longest lockdown in the world happens. Wow. Um, I can't help, but deposit what's going on in my own mental health into my books. Mozart yeah. code was getting really, really dark and I didn't even see it happening. So I was very surprised that, you know, we put pieces of ourselves in books, but I didn't really realize that my mood and the anxiety and depression that we all collectively had yes. because it was such a horrible year was shaping yeah. this story. Um, so it, you know, it's been, it's been lightened up, so it's not as bad, but that really surprised me. I also really get surprised at when, you know, you're writing and I let myself fall down rabbit holes sometimes. Yeah. And when something just happens and you can't, you can't keep your fingers have a brain of their own and your mind is not catching up. And I, I just love it. Yeah. There's it's true though. It's an act of catharsis and that yeah. low grade anxiety we all, I felt as well, kind of seeps yeah. in because it is an extension of your mood and how you're feeling to a certain extent. They say actually fiction tells more about the author than a nonfiction or memoir. Oh, I, it's, 
I mean, it's easier because I did that kind of travel memoir type thing mm -hmm. to, uh, to carefully select how much of my personal life I'm going to infuse into a nonfiction. In fiction, you often do it without even realizing mm -hmm. that you're doing it. So oh. that's, it's for more truthful in that way, I think, because Reading you between are like, the oh, yeah. <laughs> so do you write chronologically or do you write scene by scene? For the Mozart code in particular, how did you kind of slog through that when you're struggling with the state of the world in your own way and having a deadline? I knew what the heart of the story was, and I usually have things that I know have to happen. Um, but I, I'm often someone who, if I'm really stuck on a scene, I will go ahead and write, and then mm -hmm. it's like a patchwork quilt, and I sew them all up later. Um, I had with Mozart Code, I had a general idea that I just could not lose the heart of the story or the two characters, even though some of the plot stuff was changing. Yeah. The stuff that was rewritten was very logistical plot stuff and tone because it was like Eeyore the donkey <laughs> at one point. It's like everybody needs to be lightened up here. <laughs> um, but I, I don't, I, and my editors hate me for it because there's leftover plot bunnies everywhere, but I don't write chronologically in yeah. yeah that's good but I like that you it's a patchwork quilt that comes together yeah and that makes for better writing sessions when you sit down you don't feel forced to write in that timeline you write what you're feeling for that scene do you have yes. cue cards or anything on your wall I do and I have a whiteboard um that I bring out but I uh I just kind of and I kind of just always know what I'm working towards and I give myself rewards because there are scenes that I cannot wait to write Ooh, like so that. it's like if you finish this boring transition scene mm -hmm. you get to write the fun kissing scene um so I brought myself yeah pour a nice glass of wine start yes. writing that scene it and, becomes fun yeah yeah and you and have wine to enjoy and, the journey and wine and edits just go hand in hand yeah. They really do. I just, it's like, the opposite of what Stephen King's at, right? Write drunk, edit sober. Who's yeah. I, I think it's one of them, but I'm one like, of them. no. Like anyway, <laughs> or Stephen King or both. Yeah. <laughs> <Hemingway>. <laughs> write drunk. <laughs> I read something about Hemingway recently that at one of the worst parts of his, you know, alcohol induced illnesses, um, his doctor cut him back to two bottles of wine a day. I'm like, oh my gosh. <laughs> If he only, had to yeah. cut back to two bottles. Like, <laughs> how bad were you, Hemingway? How was he functioning? <laughs> that liver, I would not want to see an autopsy of that liver. No. <laughs> I can't believe he was standing and could hold I, And writing books. It made me laugh. I'm like, whoa. Mine yeah. would be incoherent the next day after two <laughs> bottles at night. But it is nice. That is an enjoyable part, kind of sitting down to do that. Yeah. So... I'm very curious. I mean, you have accomplished what most people just dream of in a lifetime and not only published one book, but 16 and more in the <laughs> yes. works. You have another one coming in 2023 as well, right? Yeah. And another novella sized, uh, I'm in a compilation with two other writers for HarperCollins that's coming out next year. So that's been fun too. Yeah. There's a lot in the pipeline. It's fun. Yeah. Um, you're short, you're short term next couple of years. Yeah. yeah. Set. So I, it begs the question then you've accomplished, you've done it. You have achieved that kind of dream. <laughs> what is on your personal and professional bucket list? What is next for you? Oh, it's so big interesting. question. 
Yeah. I mean, as I said, I'm always writing towards the next contract. And if you're an aspiring writer, you sometimes think that once you're with a publishing house, then you're good to go, but you're not because you always have to be building a sales trajectory. Mm -hmm. This is a very bottom line business. Um, I have, you know, one of my, as an agent, one of my dreams is that one of my clients books will be made into a Hallmark Christmas movie. Um, (laughs) That would be Uh, perfect for you. (laughs) I think that one of my dreams is, you know, even London Restoration and Mozart Code and my upcoming 2023 book, there are definitely books that I love writing and they're historical romance, but I never anticipated writing this time period. I kind of went because the market was going that way. I would love to get up to the position where I can write whatever historical time period that I want and my publisher will take it because I've made it that far. Um, yeah. you know, we'll read it. Absolutely. Cause I, I'm a name, um, you know, I'm a single what time period. Would that be? I love the Victorian. Mm-hmm. I really do, but it's just very, and I'd love to write more Canadian set novels, but it's very hard to, especially with an American publisher. Um, I mean, I'm a single woman who has to patch up several different, you know, I do consultations. I'm an agent. I'm writing several different things just to try and survive. A goal of mine, you know, is to, to be just a little bit more stable in the writing so that the writing is a little bit more and the extracurricular stuff is not as big a part of my day just by virtue of needing to you know live (laughs) the balance finding a better balance and doing more of what you love and having a smaller chunk of your day with the other things that need to be done but having to like yeah make your make a living I wish that writing was my living alone so maybe someday and it will it will be yeah (laughs) oh I love that Okay, well, I have a few rapid fire questions. Woohoo! I'm excited. I find the rapid fire though prompts new questions for me. So if we dovetail into other things, that's okay too. But we can try to keep it rapid fire. Cool. First one is POV, third person or first person? Oh, it really depends on what I'm writing. I have written first person because it just, it has to be that way. But I, I love doing third person because I love being able to step outside. And especially when you you like London Restoration, Mozart Code, third person between two characters, I can get all the viewpoint stuff I need in there. So it's easy. And is (laughs) that the kind of book you like to read third person as well? Yeah, but I mean, I'm also a huge Charlotte Bronte fan. So clearly I love if if first person is done well, I really love it. But I I would say that it's not always done well. And as a reader, sometimes I'm like, oh, please don't. (laughs) It has to be a really strong character to hold. Yeah. I, fi- I find. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So favorite place you've traveled. Definitely Vienna. Austria is my favorite country to spend time in. Oh, I'm dying to go back. <laughs> I've been there for a couple of days. Oh, so beautiful. What is your go-to Starbucks order? Oh, I am an Americano girl. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, 
you know, it's pumpkin spice season and I won't say no because I'm a basic white girl who loves pumpkin <laughs> spice everything and I am not ashamed of it. <laughs> I'm with you. Me neither. I love it. I just had one today. I have an espresso. I had one of the pumpkin spice cake brews or something. Life <laughs> like, is still very basic. The world is on fire. We should just have pumpkin spice, whatever we want. I love I'm it. I'm with you. I, <laughs> I love this season. Yeah. Well, that's the next question. What is your favorite season? Fall, winter, like either or cozy uh, yeah favorite? i get more creative too yeah me too. your favorite hallmark holiday movie oh very merry mix-up with alicia witt so good <laughs> you knew it right off the bat i love hallmark christmas movies again not ashamed they're wonderful they make yeah, me happy <laughs> it's not a guilty pleasure it's just no, a pleasure it's just a pleasure someone wrote those too and i, I respect the right one i want to oh my gosh i would watch goal. it and read it <laughs> What is your favorite Broadway play or musical? Les Miserables. Oh yeah, that's cool. I've seen it on three continents. I even saw it in Dubai. What, that would be opera amazing. house there. It was so cool. But yeah, I'm a big well, Les Mis fan. Yeah, that, one, <laughs> that one gets into your bones. That's an amazing one live. Yeah. Do you have a favorite child? And by that, I mean a favorite book of yours that you've Ooh, written. Oh, I actually do. Um, it's called Rose and Three Quarter Time. It's a contemporary marriage of convenience story between a conductor and his first violinist. And it's my favorite because when I wrote it three years ago, I was going through a big life change. I had just left my job of 11 years. Yeah. I was going through a, a very cloudy, dark, depressive period. I, I have, I'm very open about mental health issues. I, yeah. I suffer from anxiety and depression. And um, as I think that, everyone should be open. Yeah. And that book just really helped me it every time I was writing it it was my happy place I actually think it got me through more than you know I, I do see some you know I've got a psychiatrist and medicine to just cry this lifelong illness I'm trying to combat but that really helped me through a very dark period so it's always been my favorite and it's oh, got well, all I'm these gonna read that things. one next because I'm sure it resonates through and I like that yeah yeah that's amazing okay <laughs> so what books are currently on your bedside table or your tbi tbr pile right oh. now oh um, I'm actually just finishing Once Upon a Wardrobe by Patty Callahan Henry. Mm -hmm. um, it's coming out in October and it really is the magic of Narnia. Um, and uh, she, cause I'm interviewing her next month. So I've been doing that. And I literally just finished The Last Grand Duchess by Bryn Turnbull, Yay. which I read to provide an endorsement for. And it's about Olga Romanoff. And we all read about Anastasia, but this is just an amazing woman who I knew nothing about. I know. And it's, it's Bryn, a Toronto writer, amazing. Uh, incredible. She wrote The Woman Before Wallace, which is a massive bestseller last summer. It's coming out next spring and it was fantastic. And then I just have to decide which Christmas novella <laughs> I'm going to read next. Is it going to be always in December or one day in December? I've been, this is the time of year where publishers send me e-galleys of their new Christmas novellas. And I always just go nuts. So. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I love it. It's not even Halloween yet. And you're already on. Yeah, I'm already Christmas. I mean, yes. theoretically, I should be reading this book on um, Paris under occupation for my 2023 book, but I would rather read about Christmas. You know, mall Santa's falling in love with single moms. 
So after reading about the Romanovs, which is Britain's book, I think that's you need something light too. I yeah. Like, oh, she's smart. such a beautiful writer. Yeah. She's incredible. Yeah. I can't yeah. wait for that one too. Well, do you have any go-to book recommendations for writers, kind of writing craft books? And if not, any books that you just recommend people read in general can be anything. So I've actually not really ever written. I've always felt that because I've been a voracious reader my entire life, I think that that's always been my writer's craft. I didn't, I have nothing against writer's classes or people, but I've never actually taken them or read craft books. But I do go back to favorite books that sort of um, inform how I think that things are brilliantly done. I often recommend The Huntress by Kate Quinn. It's a fantastic story. It's a fantastic romance and it's just brilliantly plotted. Um, It's set in the post-war, they're hunting a Nazi. I I love it. So that's when I I go to recommendation. And I love this book called The Morning Gift by Eva Ibbotson. It's about, it's it's an older book now, but it's still available. Um, And it's half set in Vienna and half in London. And I just, Two it's of your an amazing, favorite places. oh yeah, too. So, and that's again, because I can escape into how she, she paints both cities so beautifully that, uh, I always recommend those two. Well, I'm going to have to, I've read the Huntress. Kate Quinn is amazing. She's so good. She's yeah. So good too. I love her. <laughs> and then the morning gift. I'm going to get that. Yeah. As well. Go look that one up. It's actually quite great. Actually. I love it so much that the hero in that the main character, his last name is Somerville. And I love that book so much. I named, you know, London Restoration. It's the Somervilles. That's an homage to that book. Oh, I love that. I always love knowing kind of hidden little secrets in books. Yeah. That That's really cool. And the last kind of rapid fire question is what is the best writing advice you've ever received or that you would give? You've given a lot of great nuggets today. Oh, but. I really think that it's the, and I give this a lot. So if people have seen me on other things, they might say it. And it's more about, not about writing. It's more about the publishing industry. And it's the most important lesson that you can learn in writing or anywhere is how to be happy for other people. How to be absolutely overjoyed when somebody gets a contract or a film deal or a TV deal or anything if you can be genuinely happy for other people in your community, then you have made it because you do not have that nagging sense of competition. You're able to embrace and uplift other people and it just helps elevate our entire community. So just get really naturally excited when any, whenever any book does well, because books doing well means there's room for you. So I think that that is my piece of life advice. And it just makes this entire journey a lot more fun. Oh, that's the best advice I've actually heard in a very long time. And it's so important and it's not said enough because comparison on the social media, it's so oh. easy now for people to feel that sense of envy and it does nothing to uplift because you, you or anyone else. You, know, you don't know how many, you don't know that Kate Quinn wrote 10 books that weren't published and spent over a decade writing historical books before she got the mm-hmm. Alice Network, Reese Witherspoon. You don't know that all these authors, we don't see behind the curtain. Mm-hmm. We just see those publishers weekly reports or deals. Yeah. And we automatically project that other people are more successful. But if you can just be happy 
that someone's really successful in this amazing world like Julia Quinn, Bridgerton, how many frigging that book, that book came out when I was working at the world's biggest bookstore, which doesn't even exist anymore. <laughs> um, and now it's a huge Netflix deal. We just never know what's going on behind the scenes. Yeah. And, so and it never that, takes away from your own success. No. There's room for everyone. And it just makes it more exciting to connect with authors. If you haven't been sitting at home stewing over, oh, their book sucks and my book is great. There's yeah. room for all the books. I really do believe in, it's kind of sounds a little woo-woo, but like the law of attraction. And if you're positive, you put positive energy out there, you're going to attract like energy. And I think you're a very positive person and I know everybody deals with their own things, but yeah, thank you for everything that you put out into this community because it really uh, is genuine and authentic and it really shows. So thank you. Well, and thank you for having me. <laughs> amazing. Please, can you let everybody know where we can order the mm-hmm. Mozart Code, buy the London Restoration, find you online, join your Facebook Lives. All yeah. The- um, so London Restoration, Mozart Code, any chapter is indigo, obviously, but I also am a huge fan of going into Ben McNally or Novel Spot Books in Toronto um, or Furby House if you're in, you know, Port Hope and ordering from an indie bookstore. I often, if you want to order online, I send people to bookshop.org. They have all of my uh, books there. And that again, supports indie bookstores, which need it more than Amazon is fine. They are shipping garbage bags and pencils to people. They have not withstood (laughs) the tidal wave of the pandemic or indie bookstores. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And, uh, Um, I always follow me on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. My handle is always at Rach K Mick, R-A-C-H-K-M-C. And I do one to two author Facebook interviews a week. So, and they always stay up after if people can't be there right at the moment, but come and check them out. Cause I'm interviewing really cool people, including you. We've got to set that up. (laughs) I'm so excited. Not to be missed. And I'm not talking about me, but (laughs) You will learn if you're a writer, reader, you ask incredible questions. Oh, they thank are you. so engaging and informative. So yes, definitely do not miss Rachel's Facebook lives. And I'll oh. leave all of the information as well in our show notes. Well, this was really cool. And thank you for having me. Thank you so much for taking time out of your day. I love chatting with you and we'll have to do it again because I have so many more questions. Yes, <laughs> absolutely. Thanks, Rach. Bye. Thank you.